Well, hello and welcome to our fourth lesson in this series we're calling Elisha's Double Portion. In our first lesson, we talked a little bit about Elisha's uh, commitment and uh, what it took for him to leave uh, the life that he had before and, and move into a life committed uh, to ministry. We looked at his request when he asked for a double portion. We recognized that he wasn't asking for more in the traditional sense of give me more. But what he was doing was saying, this is a very tough and difficult spiritual assignment. I'm going to need a, a ton of God's help. And then, then we looked last week about how God is still looking to do his work among people. He's looking for participants and uh, hoping that those uh, will, that hear the message will respond and get involved. And today we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 5 and the very first part of 2 Kings chapter 6. And we're going to look at the theme of starting over. I'm sure just about everybody has had a time in their life when they started over. Either from one job to another or perhaps one relationship to another, one church ministry to another, maybe just spiritually from one, one plateau to another or from, from a point of sin to starting over to a, a life of commitment to Christ. So the starting over theme is a, a, a well-worn, well-understood, well-needed uh, set of instructions that we need from God's Word. So let's uh, open our Bibles to Second uh, Kings chapter 5 and dive into two little stories that are going to be re really instructive on this business of starting over. A little bit of background first. Elisha is is continuing to minister in the northern kingdom of Israel. Sometimes we call that uh, area Israel. Sometimes we call it Samaria. Um, but it was the northern kingdom where Elisha did his ministry. And if you looked at a map, and if you know me, you know I love maps. So, But if you looked at a map, you're going to see to the northeast of, of Israel there is a country, uh, we know it today, Assyria. The Bible would call it uh, Aram, A-R-A-M, or Aram Damascus. Um, and that is the a country that's in focus in our first, uh, first uh, story. Um, just continuing to look at that map uh, with Syria in the northern portion uh, on the other side of the River Jordan from Israel. Then the country underneath that would be Amnon, and then Moab, and then further to the south would be Edom. So um, Amram, uh, Damascus, has a king. His name is ben, uh, King Ben-Hadad. And while he's not named in our story, he is named in chapter 6 and chapter 8 of 2 Kings. So we know when this uh, series of stories occurred, it was about 850 years uh, before Christ. So the first story is about how a man by the name of Nahum is healed. Let me read just verse number one of chapter five. Now, Nahum was commander of the army of the king of uh, Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given uh, a victory to uh, Aram. He was a valiant soldier, and he had leprosy. So what do we know about this guy? Well, he's referred to as a commander of the army or a valiant soldier. Those are terms that be, would be restricted in our Bible to very mighty men of valor. 
um, that term is used for Gideon and for uh, Jephthah and, and for David. So uh, Nahum is a military hero. Um, he is noted as a great man, a great man in the sight of his master. Uh, that's another way of saying uh, he had a lot of resources. He was very rich. In a minute, we're going to see what uh, size of tribute he wants to bring uh, to, uh, to Elisha, and it's a huge um, pocket of money. So this guy is a very rich man. He's highly regarded. Um, uh, that's a term that means he's honorable or highly respected. So he's a, a national military hero, uh, very rich in his own right, and, and has character on top of all that. The other thing we learn about him in that first verse is that he has leprosy. Now, leprosy is a, an interesting word in the Bible. It can refer to a whole range of, of kinds of diseases. Some of them might be re relatively mild, a skin issue of, of some sort. But it would range, that term again, would range right up to the incurable, incurable disease that you and I know of, of leprosy. Um, from science and from portions of descriptions in the scripture, particularly in the book of Leviticus, we know that leprosy, the terrible disease leprosy, starts with little red spots, if you will. The Bible says uh, they will turn white, and then once those spots or, or places of disease start turning white, then things like scales appear, and, and your hair starts to fall out, the gums in your mouth recede, so your, feet, your teeth are starting to fall out. Your joints, uh, literally, uh, on your fingers and, and arms and, and limbs, they're beginning to rot away. Um, it, the leprosy process itself actually eats away at your face. Um, and, and ultimately, uh, leprosy was a death sentence. Uh, it's a horrible, terrible disease uh, from a physiological standpoint, but it's also a horrible disease because of the social and emotional implications um, in Leviticus chapter 13, it gives a, quite a discussion of leprosy, and it, and it kind of focuses um, on the social and emotional aspects in verse 45 of Leviticus 13, where the Bible says, The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkept, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, Unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. So not only was leprosy a terrible disease uh, physically, but it also was a disease that, that destroyed relationships. The people with this disease could not live in community. They couldn't even walk to the store without crying out, unclean, unclean, so the crowds would part. Uh, the isolation and social uh, implications uh, for leprosy were grave. So back to our story, uh, this great man, Nahum, uh, well thought of in his country, uh, has leprosy. And, and uh, he, he is, he's in great, uh, great danger. Great danger isn't the right word. He, he is, uh, he's in a terrible spot in his life. That's the way to look at it. It says that the, when the bands from Aram had gone out, verse 2 of our, our text, 
uh, and taken a captive from, from Israel, uh, the, the young girl. She served Nahum's uh, wife. So on one of the, the uh, frequent attacks in northern Israel, or, or as it's known here as Samaria, uh, they had carried away some spoils of war. And uh, one of the spoils of, of, of an attack was this young uh, servant girl came to live in Nahum's home. Um, she served him from a physical standpoint, but apparently came to really respect and appreciate him. We kind of defer or infer that from the fact that she chooses to call him master or could be translated father. She's got a deep and personal uh, relationship and cares for this man. And she realizes that, that he's in a whale of hurt with this leprosy. She says to her mistress, if only my master would go see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of, of his leprosy. She wants him to, to leave uh, his hometown in Syria and, and go to Israel and go see specifically the prophet uh, Elisha. So the Bible says that um, when the girl went in and talked to him, uh, she convinces him uh, in some form or fashion. We don't have the details of it, but it says that Nahum then went to his master, uh, seemingly the king, uh, Ben-Hadad, and told him what the girl had said. And, and Ben-Hadad sends him on his way. He says, by all means, go. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Nahum left, and he took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. And the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Nahum to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, that, by the way, is Jehoram, uh, he tore his, his robes and he said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? So what happens is, is that Nahum listens to the servant girl and decides to go to Israel and to, to seek an audience with this prophet Elisha. And, and as would be normal when, when you would want something from another dignitary, he was bringing tribute. Only in this case, he is bringing a ton of, of tribute. Ten talents of silver is about 750 pounds of silver. And 6,000 shekels of gold, that's another 150 pounds of gold. So if you add those two together in today's economy, you're north of $1.2 million worth of gold and silver. And he threw in 10, um, I'll call them king-like dresses. We're not talking about women's dresses. We're talking about very festive, formal gowns that would have been a, worth a ton of money as well. So he's got, he's got quite a tribute to give, to give to the prophet. Now, in the meantime, his king, Ben-Hadad, sends a letter to the king of Israel, Jehoram. And uh, Ben-Hadad apparently kind of scared off Jehoram, or at least he's, he's worried about it. He says, uh, you know, when he gets the letter, it says when he gets the letter that he tore his robes, he, he's kind of, you know, um, giving a, a response of, uh, what? What does he want from me? Why? Why is he bothering me? What? What is he? Is he trying to pick a quarrel with me? Can I make this guy well? What if I don't? Uh, I don't know how to do miracles. Um, the uh, response of the king is in direct opposition to the response of of Elisha. In verse number eight, it says, "When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message: Why have you torn your robes? 
have the man come to me and I, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Elisha's response is, uh, let's not get all wigged out here, king. Uh, go ahead and, and, and have Nahum come to me. Now, Nahum thought he was going to the king's palace and that at that point and at that location, uh, with those relationships, he would be healed. And instead, now he's being sent to a guy's very uh, humble home. And when he gets there, um, the truth of the matter is, uh, Elisha sends a servant out. In verse number 9, he says, So Nahum went with his horses and his chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger out to, to him. He doesn't even come to the door himself. Um, it would have been quite a scene, Nahum showing up with a large entourage. And the Bible's telling us they got horses and chariots, meaning there was a a sense of military uh you know, uh, presence uh, to this. There's a there's a lot of noise. Uh, chariots don't quietly come down a country lane. There's a there's a big to do with Nahum uh, appearing at the home of Elisha, and Elisha doesn't even come out come outside and greet him. He sends a a, a servant out, and here's his message in verse ten. Okay, here's what you need to do to get rid of your leprosy. You go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Now, what's Nahum's response? Verse 11 says, he's angry. He went away. Um, he's saying, I thought that he would, he would surely at least come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord as his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me. He's saying, what? He sends a servant out? Where's the, where's the spiritual whammy? Where's the, where's the big to-do here? Why isn't he waving his arms around and calling down, you know, a fire from heaven or something? Where's the... Where's the huge issue? He says in verse 12, in reference to going to the River Jordan, wait a minute, we got rivers. Are not uh, Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the rivers of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? Be cleansed? And, he's, and he, the Bible says he turned and he went off in a rage. He, he's not going to respond well. He's humbled. This is... Um, this is a big deal. Uh, he's being rebuffed in a very casual way, and he expected a huge uh, falderall over this. He's being humbled. From verse 14 to verse 19, listen to the steps that are, that are going on. There, there was definitely no big-time prophet when he showed up in the king's palace, and the king himself has got nothing to, to help him with. Then when he shows up at the prophet's house, the prophet doesn't even come out. He sends a messenger with a, a very short, non-exciting uh, set of instructions. Go dip yourself seven times in the River Jordan. By the way, the word dip there doesn't mean like put your toe in. It's a word that means to plunge or to dive in. In other words, he was supposed to completely immerse himself in the water. And and he's going, wait a minute, I got cleaner water back home. Uh, the River Jordan would be known as a dirty river full of silt and, and, and dirt. So you want me to totally put myself in? And seven times, what's with the seven times? Well, uh, Nahum in verse 13, his servants come back to him and say, look, uh, my father, if the, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have gone and done it? Well, how much more than when he says, just wash and be cleaned? Come on, get on down there. Go to the river. And we don't know the exact process, but at some point, Nahum gives in. 
He goes down, he dips himself in the river Jordan seven times, just as the man of God had told him. And in fact, his flesh is restored and became clean. The Bible says, like a, like a young boy. Uh, it's an amazing miracle. It's an amazing opportunity for Nahum to start over. He's been uh, so uh, downtrodden and in physical pain and emotional uh, distress and out of the normal flow of, 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 of a very uh, wonderful life. And, and he's having now to start over by, by humbling himself and redirecting himself in, in a way that's being formed and fashioned by a God he's not even totally familiar with. Um, in verse 15, it says, um, Then Nahum and all his attendants, again, a large, large entourage with him, went back to the man of God. They go back to Elisha. And he stood before him and he said, Now I know. It's, it's obvious to me now. I've drawn a line in the sand and I'm starting over. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. So Nahum has a moment when he, he uh, gets clarity about his situation and the need for him to humble himself and, and begin again, and, and begin again under the auspices or the directions of the man of God, listening to what God has told him to do to create this opportunity for, for healing, for cleansing. Now, he offers a, a tribute. And uh, he, uh, he, he, Elisha rejects it, says, no thanks, I, I don't need the 1.2 million in the fancy clothes. Um, the, the thing is, is that um, Nahum responds, okay, I get it, whatever. Um, in verse 17, though, Nahum has a couple of requests, two things that he's asking for from Elisha. Um, the first one is he wants to take some soil back. Uh, from Israel. He says, let your servant be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, uh, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. So three possibilities of what what's the reason behind him wanting to take the soil back. One of it, um, he might have wanted a, a tangible reminder of his healing. So you take back some some dirt uh, from Israel. So every time you look at that urn or that jar, you remember the incredible experience you had with, with Yahweh. Um, another possibility is that he's, he's making a reference to the passage uh, in Exodus 20 that talks about building an earthen uh, altar, that if you're out in the, in the countryside and you need an altar on which to offer sacrifices to Yahweh, you would build up an earthen altar. You wouldn't have, uh, you know, stones or bricks. Uh, you would just take and pat together earth and make an earthen altar. And me, he may be insane, may be saying here that okay, I'm going to take back enough dirt so that I can make a proper altar, so I I can properly uh, do sacrifices to Yahweh. And then the other possibility is it's just some sort of a, a cultish, cultish uh, tradition that you grab some dirt where you are and, and take it home with you. I, I personally think that he had in mind the earthen altars because he makes a big deal about, I'm never again going to offer burnt offerings to anyone other than the Lord, Yahweh. 
The second thing he asks for in verse number 18 is, is for a pardon or for some forgiveness from, from Elisha. He says, uh, may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing, that when my master, that's Ben-Hadad, enters the temple of Rimmon, which is the false god of, of Syria, when, when, he enter, when he enters that, tem, that temple to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I bow there also, when I bow down in that temple of Rimnon, may the Lord forgive me. You know, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Um, th- there is a false god. His name is Rimnon, probably a sun god. And, and he's asking Elisha kind of, uh, some commentators believe uh, that this is an advance. Uh, you know, he anticipates that this is going to happen because it's happened many times before when his master, the king, would go in. He would literally uh, and physically lean on the arm of, of his great um, servant here, Nahum, as he prostrated himself in worship to this false god. Or it may be in reference to just his assurance that having Nahum there is encouraging and supportive, maybe not physically. In any case, what, what uh, Nahum is saying is, I realize this is not going to be the worship of Yahweh, so in advance, could you forgive me? Um, Elisha's response is to tell him to go in peace, um, in, in essence, to grant the forgiveness. And scholars fuss about, is he, is he actually giving him forgiveness for worshiping a false god? That would be totally inconsistent with everything else that's in the Bible. More likely what's happening is, is the process whereby someone who's a little older in the Lord, uh, a little wiser, uh, is, is granting uh, some time for the younger, less mature person to, to grow in grace. In other words, he's kind of saying, go ahead, you, you, go, you go work that out with God. You see how, how that works out. You, you, you experience it again and see how you're thinking now. What, what would be your thoughts in that scenario now that you know the truth? And, and there's something to be said for an older seasoned saint uh, cutting somebody some slack and allowing God to mature them in, in his own time and in his own way. And I think that's what's occurring here. So now remember that, that the offer of the tribute uh, from Nahum to Elisha, Elisha said, no, thank you, I, I don't need it. The latter part of this chapter is consumed with the story of, of Elisha's uh, servant, Gehazi, who in a selfish way says, wait a minute, that's a lot of money, that's a lot of a lot of tribute. And so he connives, runs after uh, Nahum as he's going back and says, oh, by the way, my, my servant's changed his mind. Um, he'd be happy to have a little tribute. And Nahum responds very positively, sure, take this back. He, he offers two talents and, and uh, two sets of clothing. Um, and he urges Gehazi to accept them and take them back. The, the problem is, is that Elisha did not want the process that God had laid out for this miracle to be tainted by by a by a tribute, and and uh, when when Gehazi comes back to Elijah, Elijah knows what's happened, even though Gehazi lies. Ultimately, he's confronted by Elijah, and in fact, Gehazi then is struck with leprosy himself. There's a terrible repercussion to his lack of character and his conniving to get. Uh, a financial reward for what was a spiritual uh, miracle. So the story ends with Nahum returning 
having a, a great encounter with Yahweh, not only was his physicalness healed, leprosy was gone, but, but God introduced himself through that process, through the starting over, through the humbling, and he's going home now a changed man. It's a remarkable story. Well, I want to do one more little story because it ties in very well with this, even though it's a totally different account. And it's in chapter 6 of 2 Kings. Um, The Bible says this. Let me just read you the first seven verses. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole and let us build a place for uh, there for us to live. And Elisha says, go. Then one of them said, well, won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha replied. And he went with them. They went to the Jordan and they began to cut down trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh, my Lord, he cried out. It was borrowed. The man of God asked, well, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick. He threw it in there and he made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out with his hand, and he took it. This is one of my favorite stories of all the miracles that Elisha performs. Remember, there are about 16 of them. This, the setting for this uh, is, is easy to understand. Remember that there were a number of schools of prophets that Elijah started, and Elisha continued to serve. And apparently one of them, uh, down near the River Jordan, uh, had had a lot of success. There were a growing number of young prophets gathering there to be schooled and taught in the ways of God. And because there wasn't enough living space, they needed to build uh, another uh, another group home, and, and they needed to expand their facilities. Now, they didn't have a lot of money. These are very simple people, uh, so they're going to they're gonna do the work themselves. They're not going to have logs come down from, you know, cedar logs from Lebanon or marble from any one of the very expensive quarries around Israel. They're, they're going to go down and chop down trees themselves by the River Jordan. And from my research, it would be like a willow or a poplar tree. And uh, they're going to they're gonna build their own, their own extension or, or new home so that the growing number of people that are gathering in that school will have a place to live. Well, what's interesting is because they're simple and poor people living in humble situations, they don't have the equipment necessary to chop down. Um, they, they needed some, some axe heads. And this is during the Bronze Age, and iron was a very important possession. If you, if you owned an axe head, you were a rich guy. Uh, so these, these poor prophets, they don't, they don't have that equipment. They've got to go borrow it. And so somewhere around them, they find someone or several someones who have axe heads made out of this iron, and and they borrow them. Um, And they go down and start chopping down trees. Um, At some point uh, when they're chopping down, the axe head came off the handle. Now, if you know anything about axes, you know that there's there's a hole in the iron, and you shove the wood up through that iron, and usually you put a uh, some sort of a, 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 what would be the word, something to, to ensure that it stays snug in that, in that hole. But if you're chopping all day long, maybe it works its way loose, and 
while they were making a chop, the axe head has come off and fallen into the river. Now, iron does not float. Uh, it is heavy and, and would have uh, dropped into the River Jordan. And the River Jordan, by the way, we mentioned earlier in the account of Nahum, is a dirty river, and it's a fast-moving river. Uh, it, it's not so much now, but it was back then. Um, so it's a real problem. Uh, they not only can't continue to do their project, but now that something of great value and worth has been lost. The, the miracle at hand is, is performed by Elisha saying, oh, well, where did it fall? And so the guys are coming over, and, and you can just picture them standing along the side of the River Jordan pointing, right, right there, fell in right there. And Elisha cuts off a stick, and he threw it in in that same location. And the stick uh, landing uh, either on or in the area of the iron uh, axe head makes it float. And when it floats, it came to the surface, and, and the instruction is given by Elisha, go ahead, lift it out. Pardon me, lift it out. And the men reached down and picked it up, and now they have their axe head again. Um, the, the fascinating story about this, this particular account of just an axe head falling in the river is that it, it, it supports really the story before it. Nahum needed to start over. There was a horrible situation, and he needed God to step in and help him start over. And here these workers uh, are, are in a totally different set of circumstances, but, but something tragic has happened for them as well, and they need to start over. Both, uh, both stories, in both stories, the men are losing something of real value. Nahum lost his health, and the prophets are losing an expensive tool, and a tool that was borrowed at that. So they need to start over. So I, I look at these and ask myself my traditional question, so what? And answer it with, I think the Bible gives some biblical steps to recovering, to, to starting over right here in this, in this last little story. And I think those steps are applicable to you and I. Now, we're not coming down with leprosy, uh, Lord willing, and we're not borrowing tools of great value and losing them in the river, but, but there are many sets of circumstances where we need to start over. Um, we lose our spiritual fervor for any number of reasons. Um, the passion that we all want to give to following hard after Christ wanes from time to time. Sometimes it's sin, and sometimes it's just uh, a disregard of things that are important. But, but on many occasions, I'll speak for my own life, I find a, a, a season of, of uh, dilution. My, my, my spiritual eagerness is diluted, and, and I need to get it back. I, I need to address the, the, the disease or the, or the situation or the problem. I need to... I need to have a restoration. I, I, I am in desperate need of an opportunity to start over. And I, and I want to take a few minutes to talk about these biblical steps to spiritual recovery, because you might find yourself in a scenario like that. The very first step is to accept responsibility. You know, in this account... Uh, the guy who loses the axe head, he's got to come clean. He's got to say, alas, I lost my, 
my axe head. I don't have it. What happens with many of us is we, we lose our spiritual fervor. We know the passion has waned, but we, we keep faking it. We're, it's like we're standing there in front of a, a, a tree stump and we're just smacking it with a, with a handle. Uh, we know the axe head isn't on there anymore, but, you know, thump, thump, thump. We just keep hitting the, the tree, I guess, um, feeling somehow it's, it's going to come down. It's not going to come down. We're not going to have productivity uh, until we acknowledge that we, we've lost something. We have to own up to it. We have to, we have to step up and say, hey, yeah, it's missing. We can't blame somebody else. We, ha- we have to stop excusing others. Um, when I have conversations with people about their, their walk in Christ, often they'll offer, well, I, I, you know, I was a really uh, f- fired up Christian until my husband did this. Or I, I was really walking with the Lord until we moved and then we didn't get in a church. And then there's an excuse or a, a, an answer, really a, a chance or an opportunity for us to avoid responsibility. But accepting responsibility is the first step. In Proverbs chapter 28, in verse number 13, the Bible says, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So step number one is to to declare, hey, something's missing, and and I want it back. I've known a time in my life when, when my walk was richer and sweeter and deeper and more meaningful. And, and I acknowledge that that's not the case right now. And I want it back. That's step number one. Step number two is to, to recognize, kind of remember, that the spiritual energy or the focus or the, the, the peace that passes understanding that, that, that at one point came in our lives, it came from the Lord. We don't get to take credit for that peace or that power. That was a gift. Uh, we, we call uh, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit by that word, a gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Have you received it? Did you, did you get that which is not inherent in you from God? We have to acknowledge, step number two, that, that it doesn't come from us. When, when the, um, the prophets recognized that the axe head fell in the water, not only did they say it's missing, they, they made the, the commentary, hey, it was borrowed. It wasn't ours. I think recognizing in these biblical steps to recovery, spiritual recovery, stopping and saying, hey, I can't take credit for what is good in my life. It comes from God. It's borrowed. James chapter 1, verse number 17 says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. We can't take credit for that. We have to acknowledge it was a, it was a gift. It was borrowed. And that, that makes it more important, more significant for us to go to God as, as we're in this process of starting over. The third step, I think, is to, to acknowledge or to identify exactly where and when we lost that spiritual zeal. Where and when did our joy go away? In our, in our story... Uh, Nahum knew it because he knew when he became sick. It, would, it wouldn't have been difficult for him to put his finger on a time and a place when he recognized how ill he was. And in the story of this, the school of prophets, 
you know, the when when Elisha says, oh, you know, hey, you got a problem here. He, he doesn't have a general discussion about it. He says, show me where. Point, point out exactly where you lost it. Um, and I would suggest that in the biblical steps of spiritual recovery, there, there needs to be a, a detailed spiritual inventory, a time when we sit down and say, this has changed, and it, and it started right here. Instead of just thumping away with a, with a, um, a stick, never recognizing that the axe head is even missing, we need to stop and say, wait a minute. I'm not going to whack away with just a pole. I'm going to acknowledge that at this point in my life, things changed. And and that may require some changes again. Maybe things changed because of some people that had an influence on you. Maybe things changed because you stopped doing something that was valuable, or you started doing some things, some things that were, were not valuable. They might not even been outright sin, but they were habits or, or choices the point is, is to identify exactly where and when we lost it. And then lastly, we need to take some action. When, when we come to understand and accept responsibility for our, for our loss, for the need to start over, and we acknowledge that the, that the power and the peace and the joy that we did have was a gift from God and it's missing, and we, we take the time to identify the exact point and place in our life when it changed, now it's time to take some action, to get busy and, and, and partner up with God to fix it. And, and the process of that is the process of engaging in spiritual disciplines. Now, there are lots of spiritual disciplines. Uh, I, I would suggest that maybe you take a look at my last series, the one I called The Life You've Always Wanted, because over, I don't know, seven, eight, nine uh, lessons, we looked at at different spiritual disciplines. And, and those are the things that we need to do when we recognize we need to start over. Things like uh, making certain there's a concentrated time in God's Word. And I'm not talking about a, a single verse that pops up on our iPad in the morning. I mean a, a time to read, a time to meditate, a time to listen to God's Word, to, to memorize it, to journal about it, to share it with someone else. That concentrated time in God's Word can move us forward. That's a way we take action. Uh, parallel with that is a, is a dedicated prayer time, a time when we include such things as worship. Um, some of my best prayer times are, are built around music, uh, worship time, a time of confession. These are the things in my life that need to be uh, discarded, um, a time of adoration. Lord, these are the things about you that I need to focus on. Yes, it's a time for requests, but it's primarily a time for lots of thanksgiving. So so taking some action, concentrated time in God's word, dedicated prayer time. And then I would add a personal involvement with God's people. You know, you need someone to disciple you. That's a relationship you need to seek out. You need someone for you to mentor, regardless of where you're at in your walk. You're further ahead than somebody, and they need you. We need friends around us to encourage us and to, and to comfort us. And we also need people around us that need us, that, that, that our service is required. All of these are action steps. They're the fourth step in that biblical steps 
to spiritual recovery. Guys, all of us, multiple times in our life, need to start over. And I think the stories this week in the life of Elisha give us an excellent template to start that, that process of starting over. Well, God bless you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. It wouldn't have been any fun without you.